this morning we want to think about what it means to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. That song that Walt wrote that we just were singing is a beautiful request for the Spirit to work in our lives, to be the breath of God that makes God known in us. This living Spirit that Christians believe in that is the game changer for all of it. He, he is the key person of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit at work in the church bringing and mediating the presence of Jesus and bringing glory to God the Father. The Spirit is the one upon whom we depend, but we can often not be very dependent on Him. And so we are concluding this morning a series we have been doing called Habits of Grace. We've thought this summer about how you grow. How actually do you grow? We grow spiritually even as our outer bodies may be wasting away. We can be incredibly strong spiritually, but we grow with bodies. We grow in very practical ways and very normal events in life. And so we wanted to pay attention to the things we do to grow this summer. And we've talked about nine of them, which we'll review briefly. But uh, we are thinking this morning about this central truth that everything we do to grow is dependent on the Spirit's work for it to be effective. What God's uh, intending to do in our lives depends on the Spirit or else it's all useless and ineffective and has no lasting or certainly eternal impact. And so the Spirit of God is who we need. And I want to start off this morning by looking at a passage that teaches something that is very hard for me to believe. There's some things that the Bible teaches that really aren't hard for me to believe in, like I'm a sinner. I've got abundant evidence for that one. I have no problem believing that. I have no problem believing you are either. And um, and that he, the human race has a major sin problem. That's just something really easy for me to believe. It's easy to, for me to believe that a brilliant, wise, very powerful, amazing being created the universe. It's, it would take tremendous faith for me to believe otherwise when I look around, consider a human hand. But, but one thing that is very hard for me to believe that is taught in the Bible, is found in this passage in John chapter 16. So would you turn there, please? Jesus is doing this teaching in particular, and he teaches something that requires great faith for me to believe. John 16, he's teaching his disciples and us along the way, and we have much to learn from this passage this morning. Let me pray for us as we go to the Word. Help us, Lord, now... We pray that this same Spirit who inspired this word would quicken our hearts to hear it and help us to grow in the ways you desire for us. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus is talking to his disciples. Let's listen in because he's talking to us as well. John 16, 1. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. He wants them to stay faithful, walking with him. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. So Jesus is saying, persecution's coming. It's going to be very difficult to follow me. He doesn't pull any punches 
on how difficult it is to be one of his disciples, they'll kill you and think they're serving God in the process. We see plenty of that in this world. People killing people thinking they're serving God. And they will do these things because they've not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. So the disciples are sad that Jesus has told them he's leaving. He's going to die and rise from the dead and ascend into heaven and leave them in that bodily way he's been with them for three years. And here's what's really hard for me to believe, what he says next in verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. What? How could that possibly be? Now, I can completely relate to the disciples having a serious problem with Jesus saying, I'm leaving. No, you must stay. We have become utterly, absolutely dependent on you for everything. You've become our lives. What do you mean you're leaving? And Jesus says, yes, I'm leaving because my leaving is an advantageous place for you to be. It's the best way for you to know me. It's the best way for you to serve me, to grow in me. How could that possibly be? Well, I'm thankful Jesus explains this. Watch. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away... The helper, the comforter, the counselor, the one who comes alongside and ministers in Jesus' place. The helper will not come to you. And when he comes, he's speaking of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God. And when he comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I have said many things. I I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth for he will not speak on his own authority and declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he, the Spirit, will take what is mine and declare it to you. So Jesus says the reason it's better that I go is because in the way God's doing things, in God's economy of relating to you and using you and growing you, the best thing is for me to leave bodily I'll be back, but in the meantime, the Spirit's going to come in power like he's never come before, and he's going to take up residence in you, and everything will be different in your life and in the world. Jesus himself says it's better that he's not here. That's really hard for me to believe, really hard. I mean, even now, I'm tempted if you said to me, okay, 
your call. Jesus can be here or you have the Spirit. I'll take Jesus. I, I'm, I'm inclined to say that. I want him right here, right now, bodily. Now, that's better. He says it's not. Jesus says it's not. He says that there is one coming that he went to the Father and asked to send. And the Spirit comes, and he did come on the day of Pentecost in this new covenant way. This indwelling, powerful way he had never come before. And he does come. And Jesus promised he would. And he sends him. And he makes all the difference. This is really important. You can't miss this, but we so easily can. We are people wired for fleshly living. We're just living according to merely human means. Not in a state of utter, absolute dependence. Like a toddler but as quite accomplished adults who think we've figured it out and we will continue to figure it out with our own ingenuity and strategy and power and strength. And God says that's a farce to think that way. That's not how it works. Oh, you can play act like you're productive and you're growing and you're a true disciple of Jesus, but it's all a big sham if it's not the Spirit doing it. And that's the troubling thing about this that I've realized about myself. A lot of times, my first prayer is, Lord, help me to discern the difference between living in the Spirit and living in the flesh. Because they can look really similar to ourselves and to others. But God knows the difference. And God's pleased with Spirit living and displeased with fleshly living. He's not honored by that. Nothing actually happens of lasting value if it's in the flesh. And so we've got to know the difference. We've got to know the difference by starting in realizing how important the difference is. How central his work in our life is. We know it. We can know it intellectually. But live very differently, starting with our hearts, than our lives would be otherwise. If the Spirit really were the essential person at work in our lives and we were dependent on Him, we'd wake up in the morning and seek His enabling, empowering, indwelling, His filling, His discernment, His conviction of sin, just like Jesus said He'd bring. We'd seek His work in our lives because Jesus says that is the work that is most advantageous to us. So we need to listen to Jesus. Even though it's hard to believe, we need to listen to His word. We need to know that that is what is best for us. Now, we've been going through this series this summer, Habits of Grace, as we've thought about how we grow. What do we actually do as embodied souls to grow? And we've thought about central truths of the Bible's teaching on this. We've called the series Habits of Grace because we think these two words, habits and grace, are in a helpful tension for us. They're stolen from a book by David Mathis called Habits of Grace. And here's how we define them at the beginning of this series, way back in the beginning of the, of the summer. Spiritual disciplines is what habits are. Practice with our bodies, mostly in normal life, rooted in the local church. They're habits. Now, my grandparents' generation had no problem with words like discipline. The younger generation has learned to be more spiritual than that. And, and think words like discipline, or duty, or obedience, or even words like religion, must be inherently bad. They can be, because they can be empty religion, or mere duty, 
not grounded in delight or uh, seeking intimacy with God or grounded in relationship, but then to go to the other extreme and think of relationship independent of regular, dutiful, obedient pursuit of deepening that relationship. It's, it's just to fall off the other side of the horse. And so we need to have an appreciation for habits, things you do as a matter of discipline. It's just what you do. It's what you do. It's just amazing to watch all these athletes in the Olympics knowing how much discipline was required to be able to do every one of those events. And, and that's what we need to think like. We, we need to think about discipline, habits, things woven into our daily routines of life. But the word grace is in helpful tension with that, isn't it? Because it's, it's not just dutiful, merely superficial pull yourself up by your bootstraps habits it's all by grace so growth and godliness is a gift from god through the kind ministry of the holy spirit which is what we will emphasize this morning and we said the goal of all of this is intimacy with god and enjoyment of him which bears fruit and glorifies him working out the gospel and first peter 3:18 is a great passage that pounds this home for christ also suffered once for sins the righteous for the unrighteous so jesus does it all for us it's not adding anything to what jesus has done he does it once and it's done he's perfectly righteous in place of our unrighteousness and nothing else need be done but what's the point of all that just righteousness for us or forgiveness for us no the point is that he might bring us to god so intimacy with God and enjoyment with him, relationship restored through Jesus, is the goal of Jesus' once-for-all work in our place, in his obedience and death on a cross. And if you've never trusted Jesus, if you've never gotten to the point where you say, ah, yes, Jesus does this for me in a way I never could, and I need to say no to my self-righteousness and my self-sacrifice and depend on Jesus. He's the only one sufficient for that. If you've never trusted Jesus, oh, I pray this will be the morning you do. And you turn from self and to Christ and you'll find life in him and restored intimacy with God. That's what we're created for more than anything else. So that's the goal. And then what does this look like? Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, small s. But speaking of our spirits that were dead and are now made alive by the spirit, capital S. So this is a gospel reality. If you disengage the gospel from habits of grace, it won't be Christian. It won't be biblical. It'll be actually like every other religion in the world, which is what we do for God. Not about what God has done for us, which is what the Christian religion is all about. That's why to practice those habits of grace is such a wonderful thing, because it's not proving or earning or demonstrating anything before God. It's living out of completely set free hearts because of what Jesus has done. And now it's a joy. His commands, his disciplines aren't burdensome now. They're life-giving. They're freedom-bringing. And this is what they look like. These are the nine we focus on. There are other ones, and there are some embedded in here, like number three, worship includes things like baptism, the Lord's Supper, the preaching of the Word, sun corporate worship. So there are lots of other habits that we practice within these, but we wanted to focus on these nine this summer, and that's what we've done. One at a time, week by week, we've gone through these nine habits of grace. And now yeah. as we think about all of these, the ones that have been mentioned and the ones uh, that we've thought about this summer, we need to think 
back to where we were starting this morning, the Holy Spirit's work in all of these. We made some qualifications at the beginning of the series. These seven, as we think about habits of grace, I hope as you went through them, even if you were looking at them for the first time this morning, you said, wow, how do you think of any of these independent of any of the others? So uh, this first point that all these work interdependently is so important. So you want to be in the Word. If you don't read the Bible prayerfully, you're not going to read the Word rightly. If you're not informed by the Word in how you pray, you're not going to pray rightly. Uh, if your time in the Word and prayer doesn't fuel worship, you're missing the whole point, and then worship sends you back to the Word and prayer. And, and before you know it, you get through this list, and, and you say, well, let, let's not even make a list, because that'll make you think it could possibly be independently worked out, and it can. And so... Let's just realize that these all work interdependently. We said these mostly look normal. We can over-spiritualize spiritual growth when it's mostly normal looking when we grow. Uh, it's setting your clock a little earlier and actually getting up and reading your Bible. That's radical Christian living. Uh, habits of grace take discipline. Habits of grace are rooted in the local church. I want to pause on this one because it's especially important and we haven't devoted a whole sermon to it in this series, but these are fundamentally worked out in local church. Listen to Hebrews 10. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. That's fascinating. Now, first, know that meeting together is, is not Merely, you and your buddies at Starbucks or on the golf courses has actually been encouraged by some, been encouraged by some prominent Christian writers that, ah, just gather with God's people, whatever it looks like. No, when the Bible talks this way, it means local church gathering. It means gathering with, with words, sacrament, prayer, baptism, great commission sending, uh, uh, elders and church discipline and all the things that we, oh, it just makes it a little more complicated than I'd like. I just like three friends at Starbucks, thank you. That's much easier. And that's the problem. You don't get to pick who's in the church. God does. And that comes with challenges and amazing blessings. And so uh, th this is local church gathering that is the context of everything. Isn't that amazing? The day drawing near is judgment day. When Jesus returns and he's saying, in light of the fact that judgment day is coming soon, go to church. What? <laughs> go to church? You better, I thought you were going to say run for the hills, sell your home, right? Uh, buy a gun, something. You know, just uh, not go to church. That's so normal, mundane. Yeah, go to church. Be meaningfully involved in your local church. Gather regularly to prepare for Judgment Day and on a daily basis so you can stir one another up to love and good works in the midst of all the things of life, including things like suffering. So I, I wanted to pause there because that point is, is very important. So we, we say they're worked out in local church. We said that habits of grace are spirit-empowered, which is how we'll spend the rest of our time this morning thinking about that. That as the Spirit works, you kill off sin in your life. Not all at once, not ultimately fully until we see Jesus again, but progressively you see a killing of sin and a, a freedom from the bondage to sin and an enjoyment of the freedom to righteousness. And finally, this is the point we started with, habits of grace express 
and enable enjoyment of God. That's the whole point. Make sure it all stays God-centered. It's amazing how we can take God's kind work in our lives and end up making it all about us. Just big cul-de-sacs of spiritual growth. Uh, in, instead of this, these freeways of work out from our lives and enjoying God centrally, and it's all ultimately about Him. But let's think about this point number five for the rest of our time. Uh, habits of grace are rooted in the local church, but they're spirit-empowered. Listen to Romans 8.11. If the spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead, the spirit, will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So the same spirit of God that, that brought Jesus from the dead so he could walk out of a tomb on Easter morning is the same spirit that brings you to life spiritually and now lives in you, taking up residence in you. That's this central description of what it means to be a true Christian, a true follower of Jesus. The spirit lives in you. These habits are spirit-empowered. And so every one of these then, we need to think very intentionally, what does it mean to be about the word of God in a spirit-enabled, spirit-empowered, spirit-dependent way? We need to think, what does it mean to be dependent on the spirit in prayer or in worship or giving or serving? I want you and all of us to continue to think hard and long and daily about being spirit-dependent in each of these things. It's not enough to say I want to be vaguely, generally spirit-dependent, but in all we do, Starting with these things we do to avail ourselves to God's gracious work in our lives, we need to say, what does it mean to do these spiritual activities in a spirit-dependent way? And we can't answer all those questions. I challenge you in your grace group conversations and your lunch conversations after this to start working through these nine things and say, what does it mean? Is my suffering a spirit-enabled sanctifying suffering it's my my word prayer are all these things spirit-enabled things and, and all we're going to do with the few fleeting minutes we have left is open up a fire hose of bible and spray it all around the room so that you leave with this overwhelming impression that yes the spirit of god is absolutely essential he is absolutely fundamental for any one of these, and certainly Christian growth in general, to ever be real, to ever be active in my life. And so I, I just want to look at each of these and show just one passage. Could have looked at the hundreds, but I want to look at one passage for each. Look, so you want to be in the Word. Well, the Spirit better be at work. We impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. Interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. I went to a state university and one of the most wonderful mentors and um, professors I ever had was, was Paul Beeching. He was the dean of arts and sciences. He headed up the honors program that I was in at my state university. And he loved the New Testament. He loved to read it in Greek. And he taught New Testament as literature at my state university. And he was an atheist. And he understood the New Testament and what the different authors were trying to say accurately most of the time. His problem was not in his ability to intellectually understand what the meaning of words and verses and passages were. But, so we're talking about something different here. There is a teaching the Spirit brings that moves beyond the intellectual 
to the spiritual, to the heart, to the changed spiritual reality within us that doesn't bring just an intellectual understanding, but a spiritual transformation. That's what we're talking about there. The Spirit brings that. He makes us alive. He brings conviction of sin. He uh, guides us. He comforts us. He provides for us. He does that through His Word that He inspired, and we need to depend on Him for that. There's a radical difference between merely understanding the meaning of a passage and understanding it in a way that changes you, leads you to obedience and worship and Christ-like discipleship. And so we need to know that we're dependent on the Spirit to fulfill number one. Uh, look, two, prayer. You want to pray? Listen to the mercy of God and the Spirit's work here. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. I've been praying as long as I can remember. I'm 52. I've been at it a long time, and there's no area of my life I feel less mature in than my prayer life. It can be so incoherent and babbling and, and uh, unwise and, and meandering. And there are na- I'm so glad no one's ever recorded my prayers and then played them publicly. You already said that, Eric. I know, I do that a lot. What's that big 15-minute gap? Fell asleep, right? It, it's, uh, I, I'm so, but what do I find here? God says, I know you're weak. I know, and the Spirit in his kindness, comes and says, oh, I know what's in your heart. I'll take that. Ignore sometimes most of your words, and I'll translate that before the throne in a way where it's just what it should be. Oh, thank you. Oh, so if my prayer life isn't spirit-enabled and empowered, oh, it's nothing but embarrassing. But when the spirit moves into our prayer lives, it becomes something wonderful before the throne of God. And so our prayer needs to be spirit and power. Our worship, look, for we are the circumcision, the true new covenant people of God who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Oh, that's what we long to do every time we gather. That's what we pray will happen. That's what we prayed will happen this morning as we gathered like this, that we will glory in Christ Jesus and we know it all happens by the spirit. You may come here and sing beautifully. Wow, I sometimes am singing and I think, whoa, that woman behind me can't sing i'm just gonna stop and listen to her and i do sometimes and 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 that can be beautiful and sometimes i'll sit and say whoa that's really not good (laughs) but the the good news is god pays attention to the heart of that person singing and it's a beautiful sound to him even though musically it may be off terribly. You may come in here and sing like Kathleen Battle, right? Opera singer, right? And God hates it. God can hate your beautiful singing. If it's done in the flesh, if it's done actually to show what a good singer you are. Or, 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 or see, the Spirit, though, takes over in our hearts. Our worship, and worship isn't just singing, it's ascribing worth to God, whatever that looks like. When the Spirit's doing that, that's when it's pleasing to God. So we need to seek worship that is Spirit-enabled, not fleshly-enabled. 
at all. So when we serve, uh, I know these aren't going in order, but I rearrange them. Just if you've got a problem with that, think about issues you may have. Uh, uh, um, <laughs> some of you are like, it doesn't go three five. I know, I know. Um, hey, the gospel writers rearrange some things out of order. If they hey, look, so, uh, so how do you serve? It better be in the spirit. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit. Look, for the common good. So serving, starting with the, among the people of God and then beyond, is a Spirit-enabled, Spirit-dependent activity. He gives gifts. He enables us to serve for the common good when He works. And so when you want to serve, whether it's in children's ministry, sign up right over there, at the corner there. Uh, or food bank, or in your neighborhood, or in your family doing dishes tonight when you never do dishes. Uh, do it in the Spirit. Yes, do dishes in the Spirit of God. You know, I, Dave and Ken have been serving us so faithfully in, in our hospitality ministry uh, for providing for us on the patio. That needs to be a Spirit-enabled thing. You think coffee? Spirit, yes, making coffee. Get, making that. There's a big difference before God between doing something like that in the flesh and something like that in the spirit. To work in the nursery and change diapers in a spirit-enabled way where you do more than change a diaper, but you actually prayerfully care for a child in a way that I believe has a spiritual impact. And so we need to seek to serve whatever the details in a spirit-enabled way. It's not just preaching and worship leading that requires a spirit-enabling. It's service of any kind. You need to do it in the spirit. It can be very different otherwise and very displeasing to God. I put these two together. Hope that doesn't bother you. Proclamation and great commission living, I think, are beautifully summarized by Acts 1.8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So whether it's in our Jerusalem, like Ben and Lindsay, or our bring the gospel to bear right here in our community, or if it's our partners serving in very hard Muslim contexts around the world, it's evangelism and gospel great commission living that's got to be spirit dependent. Think about that. Jesus gives his disciples the great commission before he ascends, and he says, you go make disciples of all nations, but don't you move a muscle until the Holy Spirit comes. Don't you think of moving out and fulfilling this until the Holy Spirit comes in power. And this promise that's given in the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, comes true on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit comes upon you and then you proclaim, you preach, you do missions in the power of the Spirit. Um, and then, look what it leads to. So in Acts 2, we have the Spirit come like this. They move out and fulfill the Great Commission. But the immediate focus goes on the church fellowship. And they're giving. Listen to how they give when the Spirit shows up like he does in Acts 2. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And then look how it's summarized in Acts 4. There was not a needy person among them. When the Spirit moves in, generosity follows. 
giving follows. We give of our resources to others because God has given so much to us and his son. And fellowship is a spirit-enabled thing. If there's any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, and if any fellowship of the spirit, if any affection and mercy fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind, that is Christian fellowship. That is not gathering because of hobbies or demographics or, or similar tastes and preferences. This is about a spirit-enabled unity that moves into our lives that causes us to have a bond of friendship and family with people we would have never chosen to even spend any time with otherwise. Christian fellowship has got to be something that makes non-Christians say, What? How in the world are you two friends? You don't have anything in common at that point. You say, you're right, except for Jesus. And the Spirit of God at work bringing a unity that blows away all the things, race, culture, socioeconomic status, uh, hobbies, musical tastes and preferences, generation, all that stuff just gets blown out of the water when the unity of God by the Spirit's enabling comes because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And our fellowship now looks like this. In suffering, finally, we rejoice in our sufferings. How in the world do we do that? Knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts. How? Through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Too often we'll quote a passage like this and say, yes, suffering produces all of these things, but we don't go on and say, and the reason suffering produces these things is because the Spirit of God impresses on our hearts how loved we are, that that love flows out of our hearts, and we can have growth in suffering because of his work. You want to suffer to the glory of God? You want to suffer as a means of grace in your life and growth in your life? Suffer in the Spirit's enabling in his empowering. So here we are. These are all dependent on the Spirit of God. Here's how the Old Testament puts it when it promises this day of Pentecost that comes that it brings this age we're in now. Not by might, not by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Like I said, my first prayer very often is, Lord, show me the difference between living in the Spirit and living in the flesh because you know I can't even tell the difference sometimes. You can't tell the difference in your own life or in mine for that matter. In one another's lives, it can look very similar on the outside, but we've got to be people who are spirit-seeking, spirit-indwelled, spirit-empowered people. You've got to know the difference. I was reading a book. Have you, have you read a book and you get to just a, a little section and it makes you go take a walk or pray? And you need some time to reflect. I was reading this book, The Compelling Community by Dever and Dunlop. And they describe in the beginning of the book the time that the Holy Spirit withdrew his blessing presence from the people of God in the Old Testament. He, he withdrew it. And it, it seemed that things just basically went on as they had before. And they say this. What if the same thing happened to your church? Picture all the elements of community in your church, your main weekly gatherings, the Lord's Supper, small groups, accountability relationships, conversations after church, and so forth. Now, picture the Spirit of God and His supernatural power rising up and departing from your congregation. What happens? I would hope that our churches would dissolve into chaos. 
the moment God removed his supernatural power. But I fear that many of us have built church community in such a way that Ezekiel's vision could come true in our own day and we would never notice the difference. Have you built your community around the gospel in some other bonds or does it only hold together because of the supernatural power of Almighty God? Have you turned community building into so much of a science that the supernatural has become optional? Do these questions even matter? They do. If community in your local church is not dependent on God's supernatural spirit for its lifeblood, if your spiritual growth doesn't depend on his supernatural spirit for its lifeblood, then it is not evidently supernatural. If it's not evidently supernatural, it's counterfeit. Counterfeit community. It's posing as biblical community, but fails to accomplish its purpose. It fails to show off the wisdom of God to the world. And we've got to think about this. I think as a church, we're, and we're actually doing fairly well with this. For most of you, who many of you I know well, I think there is a spirit dependence, but man, do we all have plenty of room to grow here. Oh, I long for the day when we depend on the Spirit of God with a sense of dependence like a little child who can do nothing for herself. And we go to our Father, and of course we pray, of course we depend on the Spirit, because we know that apart from Him we can do nothing. That's where we need to be, a point of waving the white flag in our own self-sufficiency so that we seek the Spirit's work, and apart from His work, nothing will happen that really matters. All the habits of grace in the world, can do, do, you can do them your whole life and you won't be like Jesus when it's all over. You might be more moral or have character formation of some kind, but you won't be like Christ because even Jesus depends on the Spirit in his life as he represents us. Let's pray. Lord, help us. We need you. We need the Spirit's work in our lives. Would you start by showing us the difference between walking in the Spirit and walking in the flesh? Would you even show us, give us the discernment to know the difference and then lead us to repentance by the Spirit's work for our fleshly living and lead us, Lord, to practicing these habits of grace in each of them depending on the Spirit's kind and powerful presence and work and power in our lives. Help us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name.